0: previously on cover-up.
1: I spent a lot of time in Connecticut trying to forget what happened when I was growing up and just trying to be like, okay, and not really thinking I needed to find out all these answers. But then as I got older, I, I had questions and there were inconsistencies.
2: The issue was what really happened in Chappaquiddick, And Leo knew that I had access to the Kennedy's. And I arranged for Leo to give money to Joe to get
3: him out of a jam. I quite frankly never thought I'd get Gargan.
2: I think there was a great amount there of pride, of name, and place. And I think for this reason, he began talking to me about this incident and this episode. But he was not easy.
3: I noticed a car coming up behind me very quickly. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, they better slow down. And I could see two men dressed in white shirts on either side of a small person that looked like a young woman with short hair. After
4: I handed in the manuscript,
3: they canceled the contract. The Kennedy political apparatus did not want this information
1: published. They thought he was poisoned, and he was getting more and more... Erratic and a little bit agitated. His uh, his gravestone, um, it says, You shall seek the truth. So I kind of took that to heart.
0: I'm Liz McNeil, and this is Cover Up. July 19th of this year marks the 49th anniversary of the day Mary Jo Capechny's body was discovered in an upside down car in Pocha Pond under the Dyke Bridge. In the past few months, I've come to believe the story of Chappaquiddick. Is not only about Ted Kennedy, the man who caused a death and whose career and political possibilities were shaped by it. And it was not only about Mary Jo Capecney and the loss of a promising young woman. Chappaquiddick was also about the women known as the Boiler Room Girls, the women who were her co workers and her friend, what they know and why they've never spoken about the details of that night.
2: The um, events. In the aftermath of Bobby's campaign and the relationship of the senator with the Boiler Room Girls and Chappaquiddick,
0: changed changed everything. That is Nancy Lyons, one of the Boiler Room Girls, the women who worked on RFK's presidential campaign and whose nickname came from the windowless office where they worked. Her interview about working for Senator Kennedy, recorded in 2008 from the Miller Center, made me realize the women who had attended the reunion party the night Mary Jo died had a very complicated story. After Bobby's death, Nancy went on to work for Ted as a legislative assistant. Things were not easy for her after the Chappaquiddick incident.
2: It must have made it tough for you to go back there. It was tough. Because no one else from the group worked for the senator.
0: But uh,
2: you do what you have to do, and then you
0: try and step along. Like Mary Jo, Nancy had a deep connection to RFK.
2: I loved Senator Bob. He was, um, Bobby, he was very personable with staff. He would chat. And I don't think Senator Ted Kennedy has ever said to anybody I know, how are you? I don't think he's ever asked anybody that. He's not as comfortable one-on-one as he is in a crowd. And addressing a crowd or being the center of attention at a gathering, um, that kind of thing. But one-on-one, um, I don't think he was as comfortable. He had friends from college and friends from uh, his life, some of whom were, we wondered why they were friends, but then again, you know, it was it was interesting. Uh, But in that regard, in those days, they had something called a Watts line that was free, long distance. And um, we didn't have one in our office, but Bobby had one in his office. So I used to go over there to call home. And um, he would see you there, and he would go, ''Oh, there, there you are. Say hello to your mother.'' And uh, he was just, you know, and then if he, if he wanted to use the phone, he'd say, Nancy, may I use the phone? And he'd say, oh, Mrs. Lyons, how are you? Or, you know, whatever. He was just, <laughs> you know, he was just so nice. And, and if you went in, sometimes he'd be sitting on the receptionist desk, uh, talking to the receptionist desk and what you do over the weekend, that kind of thing. It was very interesting.
0: Nancy also wrote an addendum to her oral history about Chappaquiddick. In which she said, I have never discussed the tragedy at Chappaquiddick. The events of that weekend were tragic. Mary Jo was my roommate. I knew her parents. Chappaquiddick changed my life. First, the women who had significant responsibility in the national campaign for Bobby Kennedy were portrayed as girls of no significance, even as party girls. It was humiliating, but no one bothered to set the record straight. Then, for the next 10 to 12 years on each anniversary, we were pursued by the press, subjected to hate mail and demeaning descriptions of our work and those veiled accusations about our moral rectitude. Even though I returned to work within 10 feet of his office, he never, never, never asked how I was doing or said how sorry he was that I and the other women were subjected to such scrutiny. And I certainly didn't feel welcomed back by this staff. Still, he never mentioned Mary Jo to me, No call during each year's anniversary scrutiny. No thank you for supporting him during these trying times. To me, this was unbelievable, and I have not forgiven him for that insensitivity. The women from Chappaquiddick suffered greatly, both personally and professionally. Some lost jobs, some didn't get jobs. No judgeships in Massachusetts for Mary Ellen or me. Frankly, I believe he set my departure up. He knew I wanted to leave. I was offered a job in New York through one of his associates. It took me a while to understand the ploy, but I did move on to New York. Nancy went on to write this about Ted. And then in his last and final words on this subject, in his book True Compass, the senator says that he really didn't want to go to Chappaquiddick that weekend, but that I insisted. Who knew I had such power? This spring, I had a brief conversation with another boiler room girl the literary agent Esther Newberg, when working on a story for People magazine about the recent feature film on Chappaquiddick. I asked her why the women had rarely spoken about that night, and she said, because it's tasteless, and in America everyone thinks that anything is fair game for conversation, and I didn't feel that way, and neither did my friends. I realized these women are private. They lost a dear friend in a horrible way, and they were also judged without ever sharing their side of the story. In a 1994 BBC documentary about Chappaquiddick, Rosemary Keogh, the woman whose purse was found in the car, spoke about Mary Jo. She was a
1: normal, red-butted American girl like all the rest of us. She was hardworking, she was energetic, she was funny, she had a, a wonderful wit. Um, she drove around in a cute little Volkswagen Bug. Um, she she dressed nicely and, and uh, you know, uh, wore short skirts like all the rest of us did at that time. You know, she wasn't a saint. She was a nice, lovely girl, um, who was very dedicated to what we were all dedicated to. We were, it was a, it was a time of great commitment, um, and it was a time to, that people had to stand tall and take a stand uh, on Vietnam and and on civil rights and on uh, the way we thought, you know, the country was going. That whole myth of this uh, single. Bunch of single girls being sort of served up to uh, married men for some other purpose. Just didn't happen. It didn't happen. And it, it wasn't what it was about. And the relationships were not that way. So there was, you never had a feeling of concern about going somewhere. Oh, with uh, I, I, I went to Salt Lake City with Senator Edward Kennedy and Dunn Gifford and I, just the three of us together and never felt threatened or concerned. And, you know, my mother didn't worry. (laughs) You know, and my sister didn't worry,
0: no one worried. Rosemary's comments have been few over the years. One month after the accident, she told the Philadelphia Bulletin, Mary Jo's death was an accident, of that I am sure. I can't quite understand all the mysterious aspects that are being thrown around about her death. As for her purse, she said she had left it in the car after she had gone to get a transistor radio during the party. Then in 1974, Rosemary was quoted in the Boston Globe saying, My friend Mary Joe just happened to be in the wrong car at the wrong time with the wrong people. A seemingly innocuous comment until you realize, why does Rosemary say the wrong people if, as Ted had always maintained, it was just he and Mary Joe in the car? Over the last few months, I've tried various members of Senator Kennedy's family and was told by a spokesperson no family member would speak to me. I also tried Ted's ex-wife, Joan Kennedy, and a friend of hers said that while the events of Chappaquiddick had been devastating, she had nothing new to say. I also tried many of the Senator's friends. Some did not respond or did not wish to speak. Others said they could not, for fear of angering the family. A few spoke to me anonymously. One friend who had worked on Ted's 1980 presidential bid said this of Chappaquiddick. It hung over him like a permanent cloud. It's the question everywhere, all the time. He knew that. We said it probably cancels out the possibility. But he said, I'm going to try anyway. The friend added, I felt that Ted had a sadness he could not shake, and I felt that sadness communicated in good and bad ways. He was clearly wounded, and you could see that. It was palpable, and so there was a need for healing in Ted. And while he could push a bill through and he could make stuff happen, underneath that success were always the ruminations about why he could not have been president, which he should have been. He was a tragic figure in a way, said the friend. The fog of tragedy swirled around him.
2: And therefore I take the course compelled by events and by my commitment to public life. Today I formally announce that I'm a candidate for president of the United States.
0: On November 7th, 1979, Ted declared his run for the presidency. Although he was talked about as a possible candidate in 1972 and 1976, Ted did not enter the race until the 1980 election when he challenged President Jimmy Carter for the Democratic nomination. And Ted finally tried to seize his moment. In a CBS interview that fall with Roger Mudd, Ted was unable to articulate an answer to a key question.
2: Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm... Uh, were I to, to make the uh, the announcement and uh, to run, the reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is, there's more natural resources than any nation of the world, as the greatest educated population in the world, the greatest technology...
0: His answer was painful and unconvincing as was his response when Mudd asked if he thought anyone would ever fully believe his explanation of Chappaquiddick. He stammered for several minutes and then said, quote, The behavior was inexplicable, so I find that those, those, those types of questions as they apply to that. They're questions in my own soul as well, but that, that happens to be the way it was. Ted lost the nomination to Jimmy Carter. Afterwards, at the 1980 Democratic National Convention he pledged to keep up the fight.
2: For me, a few hours ago, this campaign came to an end. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never
0: die. The dream was also about Jack and Bobby and what might have been. And Ted did deliver on the promise of his brothers, fighting on behalf of those who had the least for health care, workers' rights, and civil rights. And he became known as one of the greatest legislators of our time, the Lion of the Senate. His 46-year career was an epic story of unlikely Republican alliances and friendships, fierce battles, and gritty perseverance. His 2002 vote against the war in Iraq was, he said, the vote he was most proud of. His endorsement of Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton propelled Obama to the 2008 Democratic nomination. In May 2008, it was revealed Ted had been diagnosed with brain cancer. Afterwards, his friend Senator Robert Byrd broke down on the Senate floor.
2: My thoughts and my humble prayers are with Senator Kennedy, my dear friend Ted.
0: His final appearance at the DNC in August 2008 was met with a standing ovation.
3: Thank you, thank you. For me, this is a season of hope. New hope for a justice and fair prosperity for the many and not just for the few, new hope. And this is the cause of my life, new hope. That we will break the old gridlock and guarantee that every American, North, South, East, West, young, old, will have decent, quality health care as a fundamental right and not a privilege. can meet these challenges with Barack Obama. Yes, we can, and finally, yes, we will.
0: Ted Kennedy was the brother who had lived long enough to have a lasting influence as a legislator, and he had more of an impact than many presidents. He died on August twenty fifth, 2009, at 77 years old. When I asked his friend how Ted felt about all of his accomplishments, he said he felt it was never enough. He felt like he let everybody down in Chappaquiddick. You know, the staff, the Kennedy loyalists who were always more doctrinaire than the Kennedys themselves would say, oh, it was just a problem, but a convenient problem for the opposition to latch onto." That was not Teddy's point of view. Teddy's point of view was he did something immensely stupid and he would have to live with it. In the same way that he took the deaths of his brothers on his shoulders, he took that. He is a guy who carried a lot of weight, and how well he balanced the enormous burden of history that he carried. Nobody would sum up his legacy more eloquently than President Obama, who spoke at Ted's funeral.
4: Today we say goodbye to the youngest child of Rose and Joseph Kennedy. The world will long remember their son Edward, as the heir to a weighty legacy, a champion for those who had none, the soul of the Democratic Party and the lion of the United States Senate, a man who graces nearly 1,000 laws and who penned more than 300 laws himself. That spirit of resilience and good humor would see Teddy through more pain and tragedy than most of us will ever know. He lost two siblings by the age of 16. He saw two more taken violently from a country that loved them. He said goodbye to his beloved sister Eunice in the final days of his life. He narrowly survived a plane crash, watched two children struggle with cancer, buried three nephews, and experience personal failings and setbacks in the most public way possible. It's a string of events that would have broken a lesser man. And it would have been easy for Ted to let himself become bitter and hardened, to surrender to self pity and regret, to retreat from public life and live out his years in peaceful quiet. No one would have blamed him for that. Through his own suffering, Ted Kennedy became more alive to the plight and the suffering of others. The sick child who could not see a doctor, the young soldier denied her rights because of what she looks like, or who she loves, or where she comes from. Landmark laws that he championed, the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, immigration reform, children's health, Insurance, the Family and Medical Leave Act, all have a running thread. Ted Kennedy's life work was not to champion the causes of those with wealth or power or special connections, it was to give a voice to those who were not heard, to add a rung to the ladder of opportunity, to make real the dream of our founding. He was given the gift of time, that his brothers were not. And he used that gift to touch as many lives and right as many wrongs as the years would allow.
0: What a long way he had come from the tragedy of Chappaquiddick, when many saw the senator as a man whose concern for his own political survival had taken precedence. Less than a month after his death, his memoir, True Compass, was released. "'That night on Chappaquiddick Island ended in a horrible tragedy that haunts me every day of my life,' he wrote. "'I had suffered sudden and violent loss far too many times, but this night was different. This night, I was responsible. I'm not proud of these hours. My actions were inexcusable. Perhaps I have not made my acknowledgement of this clear enough over the years. And perhaps I have not fully acknowledged the following points as well. I was afraid. I was overwhelmed.' I made terrible decisions. Yes, it was an accident, but that doesn't erase the fact that I had caused an innocent woman's death. It was only after his death that Senator Kennedy was able to clearly state an admission of personal responsibility for the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. Over the past few months, I've heard different versions of what happened the night of July 18, 1969. Then came a letter to Mary Joe's cousin, Georgetta Patowski, and her son, William, from a man they'd never met. I asked Georgetta to tell me about it, and it was not what I expected.
3: This letter was sent to uh, Bill and I. We got it a couple of weeks after it was mailed. The author of the letter has entitled the story, The Untold Story of Jappaquiddick. And in the letter, he claims that 20 years ago, he and his then wife uh, went to lunch with a girlfriend from her work. They call her quote unquote Betty and asked over margaritas. This woman confides in them that she had had a relationship, a love relationship with Bobby Kennedy. And, um, that because of he offered her a position and she became known. She, she knew the, a uh, boiler room girl. And, um, After a few more margaritas, she told them that she knew what happened the night at Shabbat Clinic, that Mary Jo had died. Apparently, this is uh, the first time that the letter writer's friend, Betty, has ever talked about what happened that night, that she has never told anyone what exactly happened the night that Mary Jo died, that she had never confided it to anyone, and that she herself was doubly... Devastated because of her affection for Bobby Kennedy, as well as for the death of Mary Jo. According to her, the tone for the reunion was a somber one that they were, they had gathered together to remember uh, Bobby Kennedy and his, uh, their love for him. And they had perhaps had too much to drink, maybe even including Mary Jo. This Betty and Mary Jo then uh, went outside because Mary Jo wasn't feeling well. She had a touchy stomach at best, and if she had a little too much to drink, it would not have set right with her. So uh, Betty got her to lie down in the back seat of the uh, Oldsmobile and went to sleep. Now, uh, this woman describes it as passing out. The woman returned then to the party and subsequently said she went to bed herself. Now, sometime later on in the evening, the story goes that Ted um, got into the automobile with another woman, and they drove off to do whatever. And um, they did not know that Mary Jo was passed out in the back seat of the car. The letter writer said that after Ted and his uh, female companion left the party, that they did um, stop and they were witnessed by uh, Huck Look, who saw them that evening. But after they realized that the deputy sheriff saw them, they sped off down toward uh, the bridge. And that at that point, that was when the car went off the bridge. That Ted and his female companion. Both escaped the car, and um, they went back to the party. After that, the letter writer says that um, when Ted Carr went off the the bridge at, at Chappaquiddick, that he was not aware that Mary Jo was in the back seat of the car. The letter writer wrote that when Betty woke up the following morning, she heard of Teddy and his trice escapade and asked how Mary Jo fared. To all their surprise, until that moment, no one but Betty knew of Mary Jo's presence in Teddy's car. Once she conveyed and confirmed her story, the Kennedy damage control machine kicked in and informed the shocked senator. And, um... Shortly after that, um, Ted Kennedy went to the police station and informed them uh, that an accident had her- happened and that he was the driver of the car. Apparently, Betty is relieved to have um, told someone the truth about what she believes happened at Chappaquiddick that night. And um, that Mary Jo was indeed not some fly-by-night floozy, that she was a very you know, good person and she just happened to be in the wrong place. Mary Jo was grieving for the loss of their friend, Bobby Kennedy. They all were. It was a very hard night for all of them, and this was a tragic situation for all of them.
0: Georgetta, do you feel like this is the truth? I I believe that there could be a measure of truth
3: in this, uh, but it doesn't answer all the questions.
0: Georgetta was right. The letter raised plenty of questions. If Ted really hadn't known Mary Jo was asleep in the back seat, why not say that from the beginning? His 10-hour delay before calling the police would certainly have looked less damning if he didn't know anyone was still in the car. He wouldn't have had to mention the other woman with him in the front. The story could have been that he had been driving to the ferry, took a wrong turn, and went off the bridge. Why, if the letter's version of events was true, did Ted say he made repeated efforts to save Mary Jo and then neglect to report the accident for hours? Here's Georgetta.
3: Now, Gwen uh, always thought Mary Jo might have just gotten into the backseat of the car and went to sleep. And if this is the way it happened, and they didn't know she was in the car, why didn't they just say that? Why make up all those stories about them diving for Mary Jo in the car? About him swimming back to the mainland?
0: When I reached out to the letter writer, he did not respond but left a message for Georgetta and her son William that he did not want to speak with me. I told a friend of Ted's I'd been speaking to that I heard Mary Joe may have been asleep in the back seat of the car that night. He said Ted had told him, quote, I had no idea she was asleep in the back. The friend wasn't sure how or when Ted had found out about Mary Joe's presence. I believe he was told by somebody on the family staff that there was somebody in the car, said the friend. He didn't know she was in the back seat. He could have saved her if he had known something. Certainly, he carried a tremendous weight that he could have, or should have, done better than he did. I asked why had he not told the truth even years later, and his friend said, I think the theory was on his part, and remember the Kennedy machine hadn't disappeared yet. All these guys were very much alive. Inside the diaspora of Kennedy loyalists, there was a strong sense that you shouldn't resurrect it. And you weren't going to change the world by reopening this and try to restate something. It would look and feel like you were doing it only to try to get elected. And Ted said, if the things I have to say about the country and where it should go and the people and what we need are falling on deaf ears, then so be it. So one person via a letter had told Mary Jo's family that Ted and another woman had been in a car accident and that Mary Jo was asleep in the back based on a conversation with a woman whom he called Betty, who had attended the party. And I don't know Betty's real name. And a second source, who did not want to be identified, said that Ted had told him that he didn't know that Mary Jo was asleep in the backseat of the car. Over the years, others have written about this possibility. A 2016 book by Don Nelson, Chappaquiddick Tragedy, Kennedy's Second Passenger Revealed, said Rosemary Keogh had been the third person in the car but he did not have definitive proof. Yet Rosemary's purse in the front seat and her comment about Mary Jo being with the wrong people that night does make this a believable theory. I've been told at least one of the primary investigators now dead also believed it, but he's not around for me to ask him why. In the past few days, I have gone back to the spokesperson for Ted's widow, Victoria Reggie, to relay what I had been told and ask for a response. As of this recording, there has been none. I also tried each of the boiler room girls again to let them know I had new information I'd like to run by them. Only Esther Newberg responded to say she had no comment. And Georgetta wasn't sure she believed the theory, or if it was the whole truth. I can only present it as one of the possibilities. One of the things that makes Chappaquiddick so hard to comprehend is what happened afterwards. It was a tragic accident, but what happened afterwards was not. The silence, the evasiveness, and the week-long seclusion as the senators surrounded by advisors assembled their response as if it was a problem that needed to be handled and not the death of a young woman. Chappaquiddick was a story of politics and power, but it was also a very human story about the complexities of Ted Kennedy and the losses he'd endured and the tragic loss of a young woman's life. It was a Rashomon type of story of multiple versions and multiple truths. And what really happened remains a mystery. In a 1980 appearance on Meet the Press, Ted Kennedy said this of Chappaquiddick, there is not going to be any new information that is going to challenge my testimony. Senator Kennedy had said there was nothing new to discover about Chappaquiddick. But after interviewing some 60 people who lived through the event, I've learned that was not the case. And now nearly 50 years after Mary Jo's death, though the full truth about that night may never emerge. Their memories have spoken. For Mary Jo's cousin, Georgetta, the questions never end.
3: Why would he go back to Everytown and establish a 2 a.m. alibi if he thought there was an empty car laying in the pond? I can understand why they didn't get it that night if he didn't know Mary Jo was in the car. But um, I think there's so much that we don't know, and we still have questions about what happened after She got into the back of the car because even though the letter writer says that his friend is revealing this information for the first time, he's not really revealing who his friend is. He's not telling us, really, who was this person. Was she one of the boiler room girls? Was she uh, someone who was at the party and not identified? We don't know. And until we know the truth, We can never rest in peace. The truth, even if it's not what you want to hear, has some dignity to it. Um, It's real. It's, It's what you know you have to deal with. This may be some truth, but it's not all the truth. And I still have questions about what really happened that night. Don't you?
0: Yes, I do. Georgette, I hope our project helps get you closer to the truth.
3: I hope it brings us closer to the truth. I do I do The bottom line is I know Barry Jo is okay I know she's all right. The only thing I can do At this point Is put them all In God's hands Whatever happened Whatever anybody did He'll have to sort it out I can't sort it out We have to let it go Cover Up is a joint production by People Magazine and Cadence 13 and was written and reported by Liz McNeil. Executive Producers Christina Everett and Chris Colbert with Liz McNeil, Producer Terrence Malingone, Editor Bill Schultz, Research Assistant Jennifer Lynch, Fact Checking Hugh McCartan, and Legal Advisor Robert Bursch. Thank you to everyone who has listened and followed our journey through the episodes. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen. And to continue the discussion, you can still join our Facebook group to share your thoughts and theories. Just search Cover Up. Or to reach us directly, email coverup@people.com.